I'd like to take a moment, if I may, before we start the show. A few weeks ago, I had requested prayers for my mother, whose name is Elaine, uh, who has uh, health issues with her lungs, and she had to go in to get some tests done on her lungs. And one of those tests have come back, and there is a bacteria in her lungs that her doctor does not feel comfortable treating, and he is sending her to a specialist, but the specialist can't see her until February 2nd. Uh, So if you all could keep Elaine in your thoughts and prayers, we would so much appreciate it. And I know she definitely appreciates it. And she's thanked everyone. She sent me a message thanking everyone for the prayers before. And I'm sure she's very thankful now. Uh, So thank you all so very much. And if you are in need of prayers and you or, you know, someone who's in need of prayers, um, stay tuned to the show. At the end of the show, I will tell you exactly how you can contact me and get me those prayers so we can get to praying for you. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Faith and More podcast. I firmly believe that the divine works through people every day to help us. These people are so very humble and most of us don't even know they exist or existed. Hello, my name is Angel, and the goal of this show is to introduce you to these amazing beings. Their stories will uplift, encourage, heal, motivate, and inspire your faith. Welcome to Season 2, everyone. If you're new to the show, thanks for finding us and for tuning in. I pray that you find everything you've been searching for here and more. You have a whole previous season to binge listen. It was a great season, and Season 2 will be even better. And if you're returning, thank you so much for returning and for keeping the show in your heart and mind and your ears. It's because of you that this show is here. So feel free to get a cup of your favorite coffee or tea, your favorite blanket, sit back and relax in your favorite chair or sofa and enjoy the show. That is, unless you're driving, keep your hands on the wheel and still enjoy the show. Welcome to season two, everyone. Here we are. Yes, (laughs) episode one of season two. Thank you for tuning in. If you're new to the show, thanks for finding us and know that you've got 20 episodes of season one that you can go back and just plow on through and enjoy. There's so much we covered in season one. So many amazing people And it's just going to get even more amazing in season two. I promise you that. And if you're returning, thank you so much for returning to the show. Believe me, you're not going to be disappointed with this season. But before we begin this week's episode, I have some back story to give or share, I should say, with all of you. Uh, There is a truly amazing person, of course, because everyone's truly amazing, but there's a truly amazing person uh, that I actually did a show on and was going to upload it for season one. Well, I reached out to the person that I did the show on and just to follow up with them on a book that they were in the process of writing to get more information on the book as far as its release Um, so I could share that with all of you. Well, I, the person that I contacted actually wrote me back and said, you know, due to COVID that they're very busy and that they're still working on the book and it has not been released yet. 
and they offered to do an interview with me. So you're going to experience that interview today. So I don't know what your thoughts are on near-death experiences. Now, you all know that I'm interested in the paranormal, and of course I'm also interested in what happens after we pass uh, from this life. And near-death experiences are about as close as we can actually get, other than going through scriptures, of what happens to us when we pass away, or we're in the process of passing, or when we're in the between, or the void, so to speak. So the person I'm going to be sharing the interview with you today is a person that has a remarkable near-death experience story. Now, I've heard many over the years and seen and studied many over the years, but there's something so unique and different about this person's experience that she's going to share with all of us that is truly amazing. To me, it's something that you know, when you listen to other people's near-death experiences, you read them or study them, you know, sometimes they're just, you can't wrap your mind around it. It seems too outlandish or too too unreal. Um, but the person I'm going, that is going to be sharing their story with you today is very real. She's incredibly real. And when you hear her give you or share with you her near-death experience, uh, for many people, such as my wife, she was like, well, that's exactly what I thought God was like uh, and, and believe that's what God is like. And, you know, you may feel the same way, too, or you may be like, oh, my gosh, that's the validation I needed. That's what I needed. And through her story, I hope and I so pray that it so uplifts, encourages you, inspires you and really puts a fire under your faith, whatever that faith may be. So who is this person? Well, she is the truly amazing Penny Whitbrot. An incident occurred with Penny on August of 2012, which she's going to share, uh, that made her have to go to the emergency room, and it nearly took her life. Uh, it put her into a coma for a week, and she had some incredible experiences while in the coma, and she's going to share that with you. Penny's story doesn't end there by far. She contracted COVID back in March of 2020 and almost passed away from that. Now, Penny is a retired nurse, so she's very medical familiar and knew what she was going through, and she's put together some protocols that can help you beat COVID with over-the-counter items. Now, I'm going to list her website at the end of the show, and it's, of course, it's also going to be in the show notes on the website. Uh, but just a disclaimer, if you have COVID or feel you have COVID, please seek medical attention right away. And, and Penny believes that 110% as well. Um, this, in fact, the, the quickest you can, catch, you can have your COVID diagnosed, the more likely you are to recover from it. But Penny's protocols can seriously help you. She's actually saving lives. Um, and that just makes her even more truly amazing. So sit back. This is going to be a long interview. And I thought about breaking this up. But again, as in previous shows, I don't like to do that because I don't like cliffhangers. And I'm sure you don't either. So Feel free to break this show up into intervals, and or if you want to sit down and just listen to the whole thing, you are more than welcome to do that. It's almost two hours long, just as a disclaimer. So if you're going to do that, 
get yourself a cup of coffee or a nice cup of tea, your favorite blanket, and curl up on your favorite couch or chair and enjoy. So my name is Penny Whitbrook, and I live in Kentucky, which is not too far from you. And I'm always excited when I uh, meet people doing podcasts or alt news that, that live close because I feel famous by approximation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's cool to uh, meet different people. I'm always interested at, at how they found me. I know you said you found me on YouTube um, on Shaman Oak's website, which is a good, a good little brief video. I think he did a good job with that. Um, but soon, soon I'll have my uh, Penny Whitbrook YouTube channel up and I'll send you a link for that once we've got it going. Yes, and, please. We, um, we're looking forward to that, definitely. Yes, yeah, so I'm gonna see how much trouble I can get in. I'm definitely gonna be um, <laughs> kind of looking at uh, current events and issues of today through a near-death experience lens. And and I've, um, I guess I've kind of got a reputation for not having one of those super touchy-feely NDE experiences where everything is good. And um, I'm super happy with God and have no complaints or anything. <laughs> so it's it's very much me though, you know, it's it's honest and it's real and it's who I am and and who God made me to be, which I, you know, I'm I definitely have reverence for God, but I'm still who I am, you know, and he made me that way. And so we have an understanding of each other that I think maybe is a little different than you know, I know some people have a near-death experience and it's all like really pleasant and and they kind of have this um, kind of, I call it pink bubble view of life. and Yeah, like a euphoric experience. Yeah. That just kind of just extends and extends and everything's okay and don't worry about this. Whereas <laughs> I came back more opinionated than before, um, especially on things that I think are important as far as life and um, happiness and, you know, our spiritual endeavor and our ability to walk with other people who you know maybe are on a different path than we are and so I've um I, I find people either love me or they hate me so I kind of just take it all <laughs> um because you know even it's funny I had expected a lot of really well I guess historically most of the really negative comments I had had were from Christians and they're like well and that's crazy if you look you at know, the Bible they should be the most right. open armed and accepting and understanding and really wanting to hear your story you know I think a lot of them are very fearful and 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 I understand it you know kind of coming up through church I grew up Catholic but um you know we started going to a Christian church not that Catholics aren't Christians but you know, church that was called a Christian church right. when I was in my twenties. And I mean, like, I didn't even know you could buy Bibles at a store. I thought those were, you know, a gift you got when someone died from the church. And and so yeah. my upbringing was very different. And, and so I had expected that I had expected, oh, this will be really good because it'll help solidify people's belief in an afterlife. And, and, you know, I wasn't even really sure what my goal was in telling my story. I just knew I was supposed to tell it. And so I did. And, and I would get, you know, well, that light that you saw, that was, that was Satan. And I, I was just oh my shocked. Gosh. I, I was like, wow, no, that's just like, don't say that out loud. Cause that's not true. And, and they're like, well, you didn't see Jesus. And, and I find that there are some people that kind of um, came up in a church that um, instilled a lot of fear. And it is good to have reverence and have a fear of God, just like I have reverence for what my vehicle can do. I mean, not just like that, but for example, right? Um, you know, I, I, I have a firearm. I have reverence for the damage that that firearm can cause. So I'm very cautious with how it's used. And, um, and that's, that's important. But 
I think you have to be careful not to put God in this box of just being what you think, because our imaginations are super limited. You've, you know, you've lived where you've lived your whole life. You've had this certain set of experiences. Most of us haven't even been out of the country. Um, and so our life experience is really limited. So to think that we've got what that experience should be like completely nailed down, if it doesn't fit that check mark, um, that, that it must be Satan, you know, and, and I find it's really interesting. I find it's a lot easier to convince people of the existence of evil and Satan than it is to convince people of the existence oh, yeah. of God. <laughs> like they'll, they, they're like, and oh, that's yeah, a shame. And yeah. Ghosts and, and that people need exorcisms. And, and I'm like, that's easy to believe, but you know, the goodness of God is difficult. And yeah. it, it just has, it has been interesting to me. And so kind of, as we've walked through this last couple of years and, and I've started talking about my near-death experience again, just kind of happenstance. I hadn't stopped talking about it intentionally. I just was busy. And, um, but it's all come back around. And I do, I'm, I try to be sensitive to God's timing. And, and I, I try to pay attention. And so people will say, you know, how do you know what your purpose is? And, and I'm like, your purpose is what you're drawn to. You know, what you are, what you see as a struggle or what, you feel what you wish were different. Like somebody had sent me a message and I get lots of great, what's interesting is some of the great challenging messages I get are from atheists and agnostics. And I always answer those. Wow. Like if I get just some Christian person that's like, oh, you didn't see Jesus. So this, you know, you didn't really have a near-death experience. And I always explain to people, I'm like, there's a difference between having a near-death experience, at least I think, and having a death experience where you're not coming back from that. That's a whole, it's, it's like having somebody over right. for coffee versus, you know, this is the last time you're going to see someone um, or they're going to move into your house. You know, it's a whole different setup if they're moving in. And, and so I always remind people that just because it doesn't check off every little thing on your list, like I knew Jesus was present, but Jesus was present in the way that um, your, uh, your body and your mind and your spirit are present here. They're not three separate entities that I am able to identify you know, so God is this, uh, this intelligence and Jesus is this physical manifestation. And then Holy spirit is just spirit. And it, I just saw all that as one thing. And I don't know if it's like that when you die or not, I just know what I saw. And so people will get kind of bent out of shape about that or, um, but the best questions I get are always from people who are church hurt are agnostic or atheist. And, and I tell people all the time, church people ruin more people for God than atheists yes. ever will. Yeah. And it's this idea that you're so certain of your own beliefs and you're so certain of your own salvation that anything outside it is wrong. And, and God is really complex, you know? I mean, if you consider that God made each one of us and that that guy over there believes something completely different than what I believe, but God still made that person, and, and this person over here believes something completely different, but God still made them. If God made room for all of those different perceptions and beliefs, who am I to say no? Um, you know, now there are things that I flat out know are wrong and I won't engage in, but, but as far as, you know, where somebody is in their spiritual journey, it's very different for every person. And a lot of it is chalked up to what their church experiences have been. And as, as somebody who's been church hurt, you know, I, I know how that can make you take things out on God. And, and I was telling somebody the other day, I understand like this pull to socialism because the generation that my kids are from and not so much me, like when I was a kid, it was odd to 
have a friend whose parents were divorced. And it was something we whispered about, like you didn't bring that up in front of them because it was unusual. And I mean, I knew a lot of married people that were extremely unhappy and in a terrible dysfunctional relationship, but I didn't know a whole lot of people, you know, friends whose family were divorced. And um, it's just interesting because this next generation, so my kids, divorce is very common. And I think, you know, I noticed this, it's funny, I, everything you ever hear stays in your brain. You may not be aware of it, but it, it'll get pulled up at some point, just, you know, for all the things I've forgotten, there's so much that I've remembered. And, and I remembered um, the other day, I was remembering when Hillary and Bill Clinton were still in Arkansas and Hillary was pushing for, uh, I think like pre-K education or, uh, you know, like that that would be part of it and paid for it in daycare and daycares that were set up in ways that would be stimulating intellectually and socially for children. And, and, you know, she talked about it taking a village to raise a child and, and all of this. And, and I got this sense as a kid, I mean, cause that's been a lot of years ago that yeah. men were becoming what seemed to me like disposable. Um, you know, you as a woman could have it all, you know, you could have your career and your family and, and all these things. And I, I don't know who came up with that idea. You may be able to have it all, but you won't be able to do it all well. And having it all is very taxing. And I, mm-hmm. I tell people all the time for all of this liberation that women supposedly have, our lives are much harder. Um, oh, no doubt. No you know, doubt. we have to, if, if you're a single parent as a, as a mother, you're now having to support your children without the help of their father. Maybe he is helping, I don't know. Um, but in many cases, not the system isn't terribly committed to going after them and, and making sure that they pay. And, and I feel like we've put so many safeguards in place that it's so easy for men to leave. And I think we've gotten away from, like my husband and I were watching television last night and I said, um, there was this guy on the TV, it was a commercial or something and he was just being foolish. Oh, he was a, it was an insurance commercial. And so there, I think it was like, I can't remember what company, but the, they're out in front of this waterfront, right? And there's the guy that's selling insurance that's behind the counter. And then there's this man that I guess wants to buy the insurance and he's doing this, this worm thing on the ground in front of him. And I looked at my husband and I said, I don't understand why at every turn we have to make men look like fools. This is an insurance commercial. This is about doing something selfless to make sure your family is taken care of in case something were to happen to you. And, and making sure you've got all your loose ends tied up because you have responsibilities and they make the man look like an idiot. And it just, it broke my heart. And I started mentally going back through the shows that I enjoyed. And I was thinking about everybody loves Raymond, you know, Raymond's just a dupe. He's an idiot who Deborah just has to put up with. And he's useless as far as parenting their children or helping around the house. And, and that theme has carried through for so long. And I think when you when you sew that into the fabric of society, it has a way of manifesting. And so now I think you've got, it's like, you know, so my husband left when the kids were very little, David was five. And um, I look at how that injured them, you know, and how not having a dad, you know, having somebody who just actually completely walked away, I mean, total abandonment, how that has shaken their faith in faith, and how it's, it kind of, um, especially for my oldest, because he remembers it, it keys him in. He's, he's more able to see the failure of men 
it, it's like it's like if you uh, decide you're going to go buy a certain car and you want a red whatever and then you see them everywhere it's it's like that you just become more tuned in and so when he was and I feel bad talking about him without asking him but um, when they were pregnant with their first son um, their only son he said to me he's like I don't know how to be a dad and it just broke my heart you know I'm like for all of the because yeah, he hadn't had that experience right yeah. right and for all the things a mother can teach, being a father is not one of them. Right. You know, and so I, I did both, but, you know, but my mothering suffered and my fathering suffered because it's hard to be the, you know, the breadwinner that, that handles all the business, you know, oh, yeah. and to be the soft, compassionate, safe spot to land. And, I can and completely relate to him. I really can, because my father left when I was 13. Oh. Uh, I got the speech that you're now man of the house. So my mother had to start working more. And I had to take care of my younger brother and sister. And they both still have serious issues to this day from that. And I did for the longest time. I'm just now at 52, almost 53, at a point in my life where I've forgiven him. We're having uh, for them. So I can I can relate to, you know, what your son and, and what you had to go through yeah. as a single mom, because I saw my mom have to do the same thing. You know? It's so foundational, you know, and I, I remember that was a lot of my anger toward God was that, that, you know, that, that father figure never appeared for my kids. It was just us, you know, and, and, you know, here, David's thinking he's not sure he can be a good father to his dad because he's not seen that modeled really. And, and I told him he loved this show. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of the guy that was in it. Uh, Craig T. Nelson was in it. I think it's called 30 something. And Craig, Craig T. Nelson's the patriarch of the family. And, they have these family dinners that are required every Sunday and everybody comes and, you know, and their family's, you know, goofy and dysfunctional in the way that most families are. And, and, and that's who he keyed in on was, was Craig T. Nelson. And I said, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be in your own family. You can find nobility and goodness and honor in, in Craig T. Nelson's role. And you can emulate those things. And eventually you will become that person because that's how it works. And, you know, sad as it is that you have to look outside your own family to find that you can find it. And he's, he's a very good dad. And, and, and so, you know, so I, I will get a lot of flack from, you know, church folks and things like that. But I'm like, you know, a lot of the reason that my kids have such a hard time um, conceptualizing this loving father is because of church hurts. And I was talking, I was doing an interview recently, and and I was like, you know, it's, I've, I've always been that person who won't gossip. I've had people talk about me. I've walked into a room and known, had that feeling, you know, that people were talking about me and nursing is really bad for it. That whole career, you know, women just kind of do that. And it's, it's kind of culturally acceptable here. And, and I never liked it because I always felt dirty from it. I was always like, oh. You know, you would never say this in front of that person. So what does that say about your character? Like, if this is a real problem, why don't you just address it with that person rather than maligning them to everybody they have to right. work with? And men are more like more upfront. So when I worked in the open heart unit, I really liked that because the open heart unit draws a lot of male nurses. And I liked it. If they had a problem with you, they told you. Um, or if they didn't feel you were pulling your weight, they would let you know. It wasn't whispered all around the unit and and right backstabbing or anything and I just saw and I had you know to be fair I had a lot of great women that I worked with but it doesn't take too many to act like that to kind of ruin the whole environment and and then when I would see that in church and I would think it's two hours on a Sunday can you not be awful for just two hours on a Sunday right 
Can you keep it in? Can you not say something negative about that person who, despite all of these terrible things that you seem to know about that are going on in their lives, they got their crap together and got here today? Yeah. You know, is, is there any reverence for what that took for that person? And they probably know you're talking about them and they come to church right. anyway, knowing that and that other people know their personal things that they're not meant to know because you're spreading it around. Instead of being there for them and offering to help them and lift them up. And what can we do to help you? Not yes. just as a church, but me as a brother or sister, a fellow yes. parishioner, what can I do for you? No, they just want to talk Tear about it. And, yeah. and it, it is part of this feeling like you've got it together because everybody thinks everyone else has got it more together than they do. And they don't. Um, everybody's got their problems. There's no perfect marriage. There's no perfect family. And I think focusing on obvious um, shortcomings in other people is easier than what my great grandma used to say was keep your own front porch clean. And I can remember her telling me that I was telling her something about someone. And it was a really good early life lesson for me. And it was my dad's grandmother. And, and I said, Well, what do you think about that? And she said, um, Well, I think you ought to focus more on keeping your own front porch clean. We got enough to do taking care of our own business to worry about other people. And I'm, it was just a good age words. Yes. <laughs> what yes. a sage. And she was so wise. You know, she didn't have electricity yeah. in her house and the family had bought her like a water heater and she wouldn't let my dad hook it up because she said, <laughs> you know, the government's going to put wires in our house and eventually they'll listen to everything we say. Oh no. And she was right. <laughs> yes. Yes. She was right. I mean, I got two devices in this we house are. that listen to everything I say. And, and our I'm, phones and yeah. Right. And so these people that we wrote off as kind of kooky and backward thinking, you know, I, I feel like we're the the bell ringers saying, hey, be careful how much of your freedom you're willing to give away for convenience. You know, and so here she had no electricity and would cook these huge meals when we came to visit and all on a wood burning stove. And it was a joy for her. And, you know, if she saw a snake in the yard, she shot it and then she eat it. You know, it was just they were just country folk. And I remember going into her fridge one time and, and there was a big kettle in the fridge and there was something in it. And I'm like, what is, is she making soup? You know, what's in this? And I looked and I could see what looked like a skull with a hole in it. And I'm, no. I'm like, oh my goodness, what is, so I went to her. She's like, oh, that's just squirrel. Oh no, poor squirrel. Right. I lived in Louisiana for a while and they'll eat anything you can oh. fry, you know, frogs, snakes. And it, those people are not going to go hungry because they can cook anything and it's good. Um, but yeah, just this kind of, I think as church folks, um, we need to kind of ease up on the judgment and understand that not everybody is where you think you are. You know, not everybody has got it all figured out the way you think you do. And, and Judge be careful not. because Judge something, not. something is bound to come along to show you that you don't know what you think you know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in having that experience with God for me, you know, so I'd had I had had, I'd been beat up by a patient and I had this big surgery and um, it had ruptured the discs between C4, 5 and 5, 6. And so, um, you know, we had to fight work comp, even though the doctor was in there when it happened, the patient admitted he'd done it, the work comp, they're just crooks. They're like, oh, we think this is a pre-existing condition. I'm like, I've never, wow. what the heck? Like, so we were putting a line in this patient in his neck, a deep line to give IV fluids in. And, and he was an eye doctor, smart guy. And we had him in this reclining chair and I was between the reclining chair and the bed. And there are certain things, if you know a patient's violent that you don't do, but no one had told us that this patient had knocked down the director of nursing the first day he was there. Oh my our gosh. Daily meetings, right? 
So um, he's, he bolts. So I'm, I'm like holding his hand and I'm explaining to him what's going to happen. I'm like, you're going to feel something cold on your neck and then we'll drape your neck and you know, this whole thing. And so I'm holding his hand, just trying to soothe him. And he just sits bolt upright in the chair. And he says, I don't consent to this. And he punches me in the oh. face, which causes me to fall between the chair. Oh and the my bed. gosh. Yeah. And there, we had him in a low boy bed. So there are these beds that sit really close to the floor because the patient is a risk for falls. And so I couldn't pull up on anything because everything was down at my level pretty much. And he just came over and just kept punching me in the side of the head. Oh, gosh. The doctor and his nurse could not figure out how to undo the recliner to pull him off me. And so finally, uh, an aide was across the hall and she heard the scuffle and she came over and moved the chair. And I finished out my shift and everything, but I had um, ended up in a cast. I'd broken my wrist. Um, I had torn my rotator cuff. And then we didn't know what was going on with my neck initially. But I, if I turned my head to the left, everything would go dark and I couldn't see. Ooh. And I was starting to have some issues with having difficulty walking or having like some stress incontinence, things I hadn't had before. And so my, my arm guy was like, we're going to send you for a CT scan or an MRI. We want to look at your neck. And he said, I'm going to send you to this neurosurgeon and he's great, but he's really conservative. And it'll be a year before he does anything but he's good. And I'm like, okay. So I end up having to go to the company's doctor. Who's like, you know, full range of motion, no pain, no issues, like completely lying. Everything looked wow. at the MRI, said it was totally normal. And so I go back to this neurosurgeon and he says, he actually wrote, which is really unusual because doctors won't usually say anything bad about each other, but he actually wrote in his documentation that after looking at that MRI, if that doctor thought that my neck was normal, that he was either a liar, or he shouldn't be a doctor. And wow. I saw him on a Tuesday and by Thursday I was in surgery. So it wasn't oh here it was right away. And when he, he was like, you know, it'll take 45 minutes. And I was in there for hours because that disc had just blown up and there were pieces Ooh. of it everywhere. So they get that all out and screw that, those vertebrae together. Um, and I go through the recovery, which was much harder than I had expected, but I was getting there and work wouldn't let me come back till I was hundred percent even though they had like case management positions where I wouldn't have had to lift or once you've had a work comp claim, the, the goal is to get you out of that, to get you to quit with that employer. And um, which I didn't realize. So I kept trying to just figure out how I could go back. And, yeah. And they, they were like, well, no, unless you can lift a hundred pounds or I'm like, what, what <laughs> you know, why would you not accommodate me when I was injured there? But um, so in August, I was still off work. And my daughter and I were in the kitchen, we were drinking smoothies. And all of a sudden I started feeling like I couldn't swallow. And I thought, wow, that's, that's weird. And so I had EpiPens because I've had this lifelong shellfish allergy, but I've never, ever had to use one. And I've never actually had anaphylaxis from it. I just tested positive, I think in some allergy testing or something. So I always had that, but um, I was thinking, man, it's, it's hard to swallow. My tongue feels weird. And then I started kind of breaking out in hives and I thought, wow, I think I'm having anaphylaxis. And I couldn't imagine what it was. And, and I had put fish oil in the smoothie. And so later we thought, well, maybe that was it. But I had two EpiPens because they come in two packs. So I gave myself one and my, my youngest son was, had come in and he took me to the emergency room. And I got in there and the lady, it's a real small town. And I knew that emergency room well, because when they expanded their ICU, I'd come from the bigger sister hospital to help with that. And so when I saw the ER nurse, I was like, oh no. And, and so I'm like looking up because I can't breathe and I'm very hoarse sounding and you know, you can hear wheezing and, 
And she's like, well, what are you here for? And I said, well, I'm having, I think I'm having an anaphylactic reaction. I need to be seen. And she said, did you take your EpiPen? And I said, yeah. She's like, well, then why did you come in? And I'm like, oh yeah. Oh my gosh. This is not going to go well. Right. So she takes me back and she's like, well, we've got a room, but we don't have a bed yet. And I'm like, I don't need a bed. I just need to be seen. And she's like, no, no, we have to have a bed. So there's this hallway that runs down past the nurse's station to where the employee restrooms are just really narrow. This is a really small hospital, like five beds, maybe seven in the ER. And uh, she parks me way down this hallway where no one can see me. And I'm getting to feeling worse and worse. And I'm having to look up and I've got strider, which is this high pitched sound your throat makes when air won't go through. And Mm -hmm. finally, I'm like, I'm going to have to give myself my second EpiPen. I'm going to die in this hallway. So I give that shot. And not, not too long after this lady looks down the hall and she's like, oh my gosh. And so she comes running down the hall, grabs the wheelchair, pushes it into this room. And there's a bed in there. They get me up on the bed, but I don't have an IV started or anything. And I'm going downhill fast. Mm -hmm. And, uh, she's like, she's an anaphylaxis. And I remember her looking in my throat and she said, we need to get her across to trauma. And I'm like, oh man, I'm going to end up intubated. So they get me across to the trauma room and there's all these people in trying to get IVs started and they get like a really sketchy IV going, but they're given intermuscular injections of steroids and epinephrine and Benadryl. I'd had, gosh, I'd had grams of Benadryl by the time I coded. And my husband gets there and he walks into the room and it just was this kind of surreal thing. And I'm sitting straight up in the bed, looking up and he looks at the doctor and he says, if you don't innovate her soon, she's going to quit breathing. And the doctor says, oh no, we've got plenty of time before that happens. He walks out of the room and within minutes I code. And so I pop out of my body like right away. And I see them kind of just because they're filing in, it's pushing my husband out of the room. And I saw everybody that came in for the code and, and I heard the code call and, and I saw me lying in the bed, but I didn't know it was me. Um, like it was so depersonalized. And I yeah. thought, boy, she looks rough. She's going to die. They better hurry. And sorry, I thought I turned that off. Um, and so I was watching everybody and watching, I don't even know how to turn that off. Um, I was watching everybody <laughs> and, uh, and I heard the tongue blade snap, which is what they put down so that they can advance the tube down your throat. And, and then I was out. And then when I came to, again, I was in my sister's car and she lives in Wisconsin and she's driving. It's night, it's dark, it's pouring rain. I'm like, what on earth is she doing out in this weather? Something must've happened with the kids or, you know, I, I didn't know what emergency would have her out. And I looked over the seat and I knew something wasn't right. I knew I didn't feel as dense as I normally did. It didn't feel like I was sitting. I couldn't feel the seat against me. I just felt really weird. And, and I looked over the seat and I could see she, her clothes were wrinkled and mismatched. And I'm like, would she get dressed in the dark? Like what, where is she going? And uh, she pulls over at a gas station and she types into her phone, hang on kiddo, I'm coming. And then I'm out again. And so when I come back to consciousness, I'm in this, what I call this dark void. And it's just, I didn't know how big it was. It could have been a closet. It could have been a Walmart. I don't know, but I'm held up but I don't feel anything holding me up, but I'm like suspended animation kind of. And I feel something pressing against me and I'm really claustrophobic anyway. So I immediately panic and and I go back out and then I would come back to and and be in that place. And I would try to move and I couldn't move. And, and I tell people time there is very different. Like everything is happening at once, but there's no chaos. And I, that makes absolutely no sense, but that's how it is. And Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to figure out where I am. And I, I would say the time equivalent there felt like about 10 years, how 10 years would feel here. 
and, yeah, and I'm just stuck in this place. I can't figure out why I'm there. I start to question whether I ever really had had a life or lived at all, or if there ever was an earth, or maybe these were just stories of life I had made up so that I wouldn't go crazy in this place, or maybe I'd been banished. I just, I had no idea. And here I'd grown up believing in God and everything. I wasn't sure, hmm. but um, yeah, I was pretty certain that there was an intelligent design and, and that God existed. Um, and I, I hoped there would be an afterlife, but I, you know, I, everybody's hoping that nobody knows for sure. And I just started kind of losing hope that I was ever going to figure it out, or I was ever going to be able to move or get out of that place. And, 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 and so I just kind of was stuck there in that in-between place. And at one point I woke up and I realized if I had leaned my whole body forward, I would go that direction. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. I can move. And so I decide I'm going to go to the left and I lean forward. And I mean, of course you've never flown, but um, like physically, but if you could imagine flying super fast in a room that you can't see anything. So you don't have any idea if you're going to run into anything or, you know, it'd be like turning off all the lights in a house you'd never been in and then just taking off at a sprint and running. And I can see light off in the distance. And I'm like, okay, there's something over there. I'm going to go there. So I go and there's this as I get to it, there's like a partition between where I am and this other side. And it looked like um, they used to make these heavy, like leaded glass squares. And back in the 70s, they would put them up around showers and stuff. And so that's what it looked like going through there. And so I got closer and closer until my nose touched it. And I was looking through and I could see me on the other side. I could see me laying there on the ventilator. My daughter was there. And I was like, okay, okay, something's happened. I'm really sick. And I kind of did this mental calculation of my own condition. I could see what drips were running. So I knew I was in a coma that was being induced because I could see the, um, uh, I had a fentanyl drip going and I think propofol. And I looked at if my something, because signs. of your Because of your training and background, you knew that. But if it was <laughs> me or anybody else, you'd be like, what in the world's going on? We would have yeah. no idea. Well, but I you could remember. still analyze it, yeah. you know? At that moment, I remembered, I'm like, oh, I'm a nurse. That's why I know this. And I saw that I had the soft wrist restraints on and that freaked me out because I'm claustrophobic. And um, and I saw my daughter. And so the ventilator was back here on this side and to the right, I guess. And my daughter was standing in front of it. So just a little behind where I would have been able to see from the bed. And she had this red flannel shirt on that she had tied in a knot at the waist. And I'm like, why is she wearing flannel? It's August, you know, but I could see that fabric so clearly through that weird wall that I knew what it felt like. And and then I experienced her emotions. And I always tell people, my daughter's a Scorpio. No one knows what's going on in her head. But for the first time in her entire life, I knew. And I felt her fear. And so I put my arms out to grab her, to pull her to me. And they hit the wall. And I just lost it. And so I'm like enraged. And I'm beating on the wall. And um, I'm like, what is this? Why am I here? Why would you show me that? And then not, you know, no. how do I get back in there? What's, what is this? So I get sucked back into the darkness, wake up the next day, start again. And the next day when I get to the wall, it's like a bubble, it's kind of moving. Mm. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that's not solid. And so I put my hand through and my hand goes through to the other side. And I'm like, mm. oh, holy cow. Okay. All right. Just go over there. And then you probably just get sucked back in and you're good. And so yeah. I go over and I'm, I'm up above me in the room and, and I'm thinking like, do I just lower, like think myself down and lay on me and while I get soaked back up like a sponge or like, I don't know how this works. There's no instruction. Yeah, you didn't have a manual. <laughs> no, right. Yeah. Like, somebody give me something. Is there a guy? Yeah. And, uh, 
And so I thought, okay, let's, let me wake her up. Like if she wakes up, then of course I'll be sucked back in. Cause I, I'm thinking and the thinking part would have to be in the awake part. Right. And um, so I keep trying to wake her up and I'm staring at her and I'm like, just open your eyes, open your eyes. And, and she just stubbornly is laying there in an induced coma and not cooperating. And I'm getting madder and madder and I'm trying to calm that down because mad seems to always end to be back in the dark place. And um, I thought, okay, you're, you're starting too big. Just try with her finger, see if you can get her to move her little finger. And so I'm focusing on my finger and trying to get her to move it and she won't move it. And I'm like, damn it, I can't, she won't move anything. And it was so frustrating. So I get sucked oh back but just to the other side of the wall. I don't get okay. sucked all the way back. And I'm there and I'm like, what, what is it? What is it? I'm like, is there something I'm supposed to figure out? Why can't I get out of this place? And it just comes to me, you made it. And as soon as I thought that and accepted that reality that I had made that place, it started to crack. And I tell people, I grew up in Michigan and we would always go out in spring to Lake Erie because you could hear the cracking of the ice as it started to thaw. And it's a kind of a haunting noise, but that's what it sounded like. And as it started to crack, it was like we were in a big egg or something. Um, you could see the light start to come through. Oh. And so the more it cracked, the more light came through. And then suddenly there's the spirit and she's coming toward me and she's huge, like grand, huge and, and huge spiritually, you know, like she's a force and she's coming toward me and I'm so excited. I'm like, oh my gosh, people, there's people here. This is great. You know? And, and she pulls me to her without touching me, but then she puts her arm around me and her energy is spinning around us. And she's so familiar to me and I'm trying to figure out how I know her. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm crying, like ugly crying. I'm just a wreck. Right. And, um, she says with her mind to my mind, she says, calm yourself, dear one. And I tell people, if you've ever been put to sleep for surgery and they give you that first drug to kind of relax you, you can't fight that if you try it. Her oh. words had that effect, like a sedating. Wow. Effect. And I could feel it going through me like something you would have injected. And so I calm down and, and I'm trying to figure out who she is. And, and so I'm looking at her face and, and she's familiar, you know, she's got these green eyes and I'm like, oh, who is she? And I look up and her hair is this orangish red on her head, like fire. And it's dancing like fire, like flames would dance. And then I knew who she was. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is my grandmother. So it's my mom's wow. mother. And she was this force in life. She, um, people either loved her or hated her and most people loved her. <laughs> and she had worked at a steel stamping plant, I think in Dearborn, Michigan, when we lived in Ecorse. And she lived in our upstairs, there was an apartment over our house. And she the conditions were terrible and it was mostly a plant that women worked at so they didn't have a union and one of her friends got her arm caught in a stamping machine and because she couldn't work anymore they just fired her and they didn't pay for her injuries or wow anything. and it really went all over my grandmother so she was trying to get a union in there so one night she doesn't come home from work and doesn't come home and I would sit out on the porch and wait for her and it was getting darker and I kept going I'm little like four or five maybe and I kept going into my mom saying, she's not here yet. You know, it's getting dark. And, and she's like, it's okay. She'll be here. You know, just go sit out there and wait. Well, then my mom got nervous. And finally this black car rolls up, slows down. Um, the back door opens. My grandmother shoved out into the street. Oh my. And they take, they take off. And, and so she tells us that these people had taken her to the Detroit river and told her if she didn't stop, that they would kill her. That's where she'd end up. And so she continued and they got the union started. <laughs> <laughs> and she died really young she died that probably just young. fired her up even more <laughs> yeah, no kidding she, I remember when she died like I, I remember before she died it, it 
um, parties and stuff. She was the life of the party. She just, oh. she was funny and everybody just, she was just incredible. And, and she was a force. And uh, when she passed, I was nine. She had, they thought she'd had a gallbladder problem and they got in there to take out her gallbladder and it was liver cancer. And this oh, was no. like in June and she was dead within weeks. And it was just such a shock to our family because she was such a strong maternal figure in our family. You know, she had raised those kids pretty much on her own because my grandfather hadn't helped. And, um, you know, she, that's she the cornerstone of the family. Yeah. Yeah. And everything changed after she died. Christmases yeah. weren't the same. And, and we all kind of moved, everybody kind of spread out and she was the anchor that was holding all that together. And it was really hard because it felt like our roots got torn out when she died. And there yeah. she was, you know, and so I was just overcome. And I'm like, I thought you died. And she's like, oh, no, there, there's no such thing. She's like, you know this. And I'm like, no. She says, yeah, yeah, you know this. You remember this. You learned this in elementary school. And I'm like, no, no, I don't I have no idea what you're talking about. And she said, energy isn't created or destroyed. It just changes forms. She said, that's true here. And that's true in the earth. That's God's law borrowed by man. And I was like, I like, I never could give somebody this definitive answer of why there was a God or, or that we're spirit or that we go on. And that was it. Science ended up being the answer. Yeah. She's right. Energy isn't created or destroyed. It does have to go somewhere. Um, and we are electricity. We can be measured. You know, I can measure the electricity that's going through your heart by putting leads on you through your brain, through your muscles. Right. Um, and I just never had thought of myself as this energetic creation yeah. you know and and how every energy that's around you and influences you and i know there's like some really new way new age you know crystals and all this kind of stuff i don't get into all that i don't blame anybody or think anybody who does it is doing anything terrible but for me i just never had realized that that i'm bound to you and you're bound to me whether i know you or not and what hurts you hurts me whether i know it or not Right. And, and so you and I were talking about how tough COVID has been because people have gotten so entrenched in, in one idea or the other. And um, my issue with that is, while you may be convinced that what that other person is saying is stupid or wrong or whatever, their fate is tied to you. And, and what hurts them still hurts you, you know, whether you know them or like them or not. And this idea that we're just going to turn on each other and have these factions that are so embedded and so entrenched that families can't even get together for holidays. And, um, you know, this didn't used to be a problem. People have always been political and had one belief or the other. Right. And that's always been a source of arguments in family, but it never stopped anybody from getting together. And that's a whole new dynamic I'm seeing, like in our own family. And, and I was just, struck by that i'm like oh my gosh why would we not get together because we have different political beliefs but i see this kind of encampments that are being set up yeah and uh you know a wise person um looks for who is stirring that a wise person knows that most things that influence the lives of people happen outside their lives and you have to look at where is this messaging coming from where is this messaging about you know, you're stupid and I should hate you. And if you were to get sick, you should die. Um, and you think the same of me. I Like, I never hear my neighbor just say that. That's being stirred from somewhere else. Right. And that's how you identify the enemy in most of life. You know, when you see somebody stirring up 
two factions against each other. The two factions are not the problem. You're fighting against powers and principalities that are beyond them. And, and that is something that we all need to get our hands around and quick. Absolutely. We, otherwise, we're going to tear this country apart from the inside. And generations are coming up yes. in this, being taught yes. this. Yes. And you know, like we all had, I know you did, we all had that kooky aunt or grandpa or whatever, like my great grandma that was sure that the government was going to run wires into your home and listen to all your conversations who we thought was crazy, but she was no. still invited to Thanksgiving. We still loved her. Right. Right. We thought she was off and now it turns out she was right. You know, <laughs> so I feel a little stupid, but there was that um, reverence for this person had gotten further in life than you had somehow hadn't been eaten by an animal and hadn't died. And, and so there was some wisdom that came with having survived that long. And I feel like, I feel like now we see this generation that is so sure that they know the answer to everything. And part of the magic of life is not knowing. Um, because everything you know that's settled, I mean, how much time do you really spend thinking about that? It's the unsettled things that make us yeah. talk to each other and make me want to know about your ideas and you know, you offer something and I'm like, whoa, I never thought of that, you know? So I, I just see that kind of thing happening in life. But so back to being with my grandmother, I was with my grandmother and um, she was showing me this, this connection. And I saw people there. I remember seeing people there and they were all dressed differently. And I was like, so this one guy looks very tribal. He's in just the minimum amount of clothes to cover his man bits. And then this other person's wearing a robe and this other person's wearing something else. And it was very different. And I remember wondering, why are they, why are they all dressed differently? And, and they, as soon as I would think something, the answer would come. And it was, they're, they're wearing what they thought they would wear when they got here. They created that just like I created that dark space. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, everything about this dark space. And I realized that I had created it. I had, you don't realize that everything, everything that you give attention to is creative. Um, whether you physically manifest something you can show somebody or not, you know, that's, that's, that doesn't matter. The things that you think of are creating something either on this plane or on another plane. And so, you know, when I got divorced, when my, when my kids were so little, my son, my oldest was five, um, I started building this wall and I would just, every time somebody would hurt me or betray me, I would just stack another brick. And I had, you know, People didn't, people who knew me didn't know that I had this social phobia. Like I would get physically ill at the idea of just answering the phone and having to talk to somebody. It was really taking over my life yeah. and I was hiding it. And, and I went to work, people enjoyed working with me. I worked hard, I enjoyed my work, um, but I didn't let anybody in. And when I went home, I was home and uh, you know, I didn't have friendships outside of work. And, and I avoided all of that because I just didn't wanna be hurt anymore. And it's a lot of work to be a mom and a dad and work full-time and try to pull three kids through it and get them to be normal human beings, you know? And like, that's why I say for all this liberation, was I really liberated? No, I felt like a prisoner a lot because I was alone. And so I had built this jail instead of reaching out to people. And it's still hard. I think as, as Americans, we're kind of raised with this spirit of independence, you know, and that it's weakness to ask for help. And, but now I more understand that um, every time you don't reach out and you don't ask for help, you deprive somebody of their opportunity to bless you. And we all do that Definitely. a lot. So think of how often, you know, that you could have used help 
but you deprived somebody of that ability to exercise that muscle. They're good at that sort of thing, you know, because you want to do it on your own and you don't want to seem weak and you don't want to trouble anybody. And, and, and gradually what's happened, we've gotten further and further apart. We can't even talk to each other anymore. Like we don't even want people, you know, you people have this Facebook facade and it looks like their life is perfect. And then three months later, they're divorced or, you know, somebody's committed suicide and you're like, whoa, 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 that's not, I I, know I saw your family. This is how it was, but that's not how it is. Right. They said everything was fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because people don't, they're worried about being judged. And, and I just, I think we're in such a unique time to be able to turn this around. And, and I tell people all the time, I'm like, church folks hurt more people for church than atheists. I get some really good, hard questions from atheists. You know, why would a loving God um, allow children to die? Or what, you know, why would he let them have cancer? And, and my thought on that is that you're an on-purpose creation. I'm an on-purpose creation. I don't know how long God thought me up before he made me, but I love the idea of that, that he was like, you know, I'd like to make a gal. I'm thinking brown hair, brown eyes, and she'll be funny kind of in a silly sort of way, but she'll be sarcastic. She'll have a sharp wit that she'll need to learn to rein in. And I wonder how long he thought me up in his head before he knit me together, you know, because I thought up every one of my children. I, I thought their life to its end before they ever got here. What, yeah. Who would they marry? What would their children be like? What would their lives be like? And I, I have to think God does that too. And so he had some purpose in mind when, when he was thinking me up and knitting me together. So that must mean that, that you've got something to offer me and I've got something to offer you and that I don't have everything I need. Otherwise, God wouldn't have needed to make you and put us in touch with each other, you know, so when you're thinking of cutting that person off because you don't agree with their beliefs about something, they're in your path for a reason, maybe they're to teach you to rein in your own self-assuredness and let something in that might not seem innate to you and maybe, maybe there's some truth to it. And so it was kind of this discovery for me of, of how I had created this dark void where nothing existed and where I couldn't produce anything, I, I couldn't, I couldn't manifest any kind of change, because I had become my own jailer. And, you know, I, I, I said this years ago, I said, um, what's really sad is that some people cling to their chains. You know, and the shackles are undone, and, and you still sit there chained. Why? Because it's warm and familiar, you know. And and I think that's kind of the place we're in. We're so scared. We're not going to deviate from what, what we normally would think or do because things are so unsure right now. And that is the time that we go back to routine and things like that to bring us calm. And, um, but every one of us is here right now, today, for such a time as this. God could have brought you into this earth at any point, but he brought you here. And if Definitely. you're not being part of the solution, then you're being part of the problem. And if yep. your solution is pushing people further apart, you're part of the problem, you know, even if you're right. And so I always have to be careful because I've got some pretty strong opinions. I think people thought, I think they think you come back from a near-death experience and everything looks great and rosy. It's not. You are like smacked in the face with how messed up everything is and oh, how yeah. factions are trying to hurt other people and, and trying to engage you in it without you knowing. And And you see it and you want to stand on your roof and scream, wait, wait, I can explain all this. I know what's going on. Powers and principalities are trying to have us warring. Let's not do it. But no, they would just think you were crazy. And so it's hard to be that person who sees it, 
but you've got to kind of think of this way to say it that doesn't turn people off. And, and, you know, when, so I finally am with God in heaven. I know I keep getting off track, but I finally was with God and, and we're going to go through my life, you know, and, and as soon as he appeared, you know, I heard the words I am, and I was immediately frightened. And I, I knew that my grandmother could read my mind. So I was pretty sure God could too. And I immediately started to try to think of good things I had done and nothing came to mind. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, we're going to go through my life. And I don't want to go through this as if he doesn't know. Right. 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 So I'm trying to think good things. So he'll read my mind and be like, oh, that's what I know about Penny when he knows everything. <laughs> and, uh, and he calmed me, you know, he's like, it's not like that. You know, we're going to go through some things because I think there's something you could learn. And so it wasn't this judgment, you know, growing up Catholic, and, and I know this isn't true for a lot of Catholics, but it was my experience. I really feared a punitive God. I was never really sure I was, I was forgiven or that I was embraced. You know, I was sure that any moment I could do something to bring that into jeopardy. And so my spot in God's heart never felt sure to me. And, and that's a scary place to be. It's kind of like if you've got a, pa a parent who only loves you conditionally, you know, was I good enough today to be loved? Right. And, and, you know, and there are those parents that no matter what you do, you couldn't earn it. And, and so we see God, how we see parents and right. a lot of working through your spirituality is, is putting to bed the demons, you know, and realizing that God is a parent. Yes, but not like earthly parents you know, and, and not fallible in those ways. And, and, you know, some of them aren't doing the best they can. They're doing a crappy job and it's really painful for people, but that's not God. Um, and I think people get the wrong idea about God thinking that that is God. And so when I was with him, I realized I didn't have to hide anything, um, that there was no part of me that he was disgusted by or that he found distasteful you know, there were things in my journey and in my path that were not helpful to my journey or my path. Um, but, you know, I, so I find there's like two camps. I, I find there's the, um, you know, you're always worried about where you stand with God camp. And then there's the other camp that I call worm mentality. So you're a worm, nothing that you could do would be good enough for God. All your good deeds are as filthy rags before God. Um, you know, just through the grace of Christ, would we even allow somebody as disgusting as you to get into our club? And a lot of churches preach that. And that is not true. Oh, yeah. It is yeah. not true. When, when, that, when that specific passage of scripture is talking about your deeds being like filthy rags before God, they're not saying that your deeds aren't good and aren't pleasing to God, which is how it sounds, you know, so you're like, well, screw it, then how could I ever do anything good enough? What, what they're saying is that this is God, <laughs> you know, you're not going to top him in goodness. So you trying to outperform yourself with good deeds, it's, it's not going to work because that's right. not how this relationship is built. And it's just put in a way that churches, I think, tend to use to make people feel bad or, you know, that you're this worm and you're not worthy of God's love. And but for Christ, you know, you would just be cast. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Christ was with God in the garden and God made the earth as this show of love to Christ and the people and, and Christ is the apple of God's eye. And we are the apple of Christ's eye. We, we were God's gift to Christ and that's why he would do anything for us, you know? And so you're not this filthy rag. You are this daughter and or son of the divine, 
you know, exactly. And, yeah. and God is not, you know, down on you for how you're messing up. He's waiting for you to step into your role as heir. Right. That's a Don't powerful hang, thing. hang your head in shame. Stand yes. up, you know. Yes. Stand up and say, yes, these things were important to me before and I was misguided. And I don't know where I'm going, but I'm following you. If there's good that can be done, I'm going to find it. I'm going to be in the path of it, you know. And and so this idea that some person, you know, we were talking about the hashtag not your guru because I had made an opinionated statement, which was true. Um, and this person got really offended by it because she felt it was political, but it wasn't political. And and I'm like, if your faith is so weak, it's, it's so thin that one thing that I say will completely shake your foundation, you got to go back. You got to go back and figure your relationship out because I want you to be strong enough in your faith that even if I was wrong, it wouldn't hurt your walk. I'm not your guru. Um, And we, we want that, you know, I think everybody wants to have this person to follow who has it all figured out. And when you find that person turn and run because they're lying to you, they do not have it all figured out. They're not any better at sorting through this life than you are. They may look like they're doing better, but they've got all the errant thoughts and, and, and they're doing all the little First. things that belie what they say they believe. Um, you know, they've got their group of people that they hang with at church and don't talk to any of the new people. And, and you know, you've got to work your way up socially into that. And, and so don't, don't be thinking they've got it all right. And when somebody convinces you they do, then make sure you don't follow that person. And because your faith should be worked out with with trembling, you know, with God, because what he wants from you is completely different than what he wants from me. You know, he thought me up for a different purpose. And, and so when I was with him and we were kind of going through my life, I expected him to bring up things that I was very ashamed of. And I've not lived a horrible life, but everybody's got something. And, and instead he brings up, well, first he showed me something good. He showed me this scene in this grocery store. We had this little grocery store in the town we lived in. And there was a woman in front of me and she didn't have, she was just short cents to pay. And she was trying to figure out what to put back. And it just hit me in my gut because I knew what that was like to be so embarrassed that you couldn't, you know, pay for $70 worth of groceries. And you're trying to, you know, you're going to put back something for you because your kids really like macaroni and cheese. And we've all been there. And, um, and I just saw that shame come over her and it, it killed me for her. I was like, oh my goodness, you know? So I got the money out quietly and I'm like, here, take it. And she's like, no, no, I'll put something back. And I'm like, no, please. i I've been there, take it. And so she took it and God flashed that scene forward. And he showed me her working at a food, a food pantry, packing food into bags. And this woman comes in and she's just mortified that she has to go to a food pantry to get food. And here this woman is to help her. And I was like, I had no idea that it rippled so far. I don't even know who that woman is. You know, I couldn't tell you today who she is. And yeah, I was just like, I didn't real, you know, everybody's looking for their purpose and they think it's this one thing or this big thing. And it's not, it's that 72 cents. Yep. The little things. Yeah. We don't every day realize the impact it has on other people. Yes. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm understanding it more and more. Like I see people, especially nowadays, I see people who I can tell have lost all hope in humanity and that any of this is going to work out. And they're just, they're hopeless. And that's such a scary place to be. I think that's worse than depression because depression, you're sad. You, you, you feel, you know, you just have this kind of negative weight about the world, but hopeless is yeah, much worse. There's than no dangerous. hope, right? Yeah. People who commit suicide are hopeless. And I'm like, what if that 72 cents was the hope she needed that day? Yeah. 
What if it had yeah, gone? That, that could have been the that could have been the final straw for her. You didn't yeah. know, you know. You just don't know. You don't know yeah. that, you know. And it's so funny because it's so easy to be negative. It's so easy to see the negative, and and so I try really hard to, you know. And I kind of come from that. I won't be specific, but I kind of come from, you know, that we're going to find the one negative thing, and that's what we'll focus on. And and I've always been really positive, and and so I can meet somebody who is in the ugliest outfit I've ever seen. And I can always think of something kind to say. I'm like, wow, that's really colorful. I'm not brave enough to wear, you know, such bold colors. Good for you. Yeah. You know, and, and so instead of giving some kind of negative, you know, dirty look or whatever, it's, it's the little things, the little things are your purpose. And so God had showed me that and he showed me um, the effect of my own thoughts. And so I had always been careful not to gossip because I just hated that. And I knew if you were talking about this person, you were talking about me. And it just seemed so mean-spirited, very middle school girl behavior. And I was surprised to see it in grown women. And um, there was this lady that I worked with who by all counts was not a good nurse. She didn't seem to enjoy her job. Um, her care of her patients bordered on neglectful. And I just, I just didn't care for her. I'm like, you know, that call light's been ringing forever. That person needs off the bedpan. Just because a tech isn't available does not make you crippled and unable to go in there and help them because you're a nurse. Go help them. And and so I had harbored all of this resentment and I always ended up working with her and I always ended up taking care of her patients and mine. And God showed me the weight that my negative thoughts had put on her and he showed me her life. And I had not, I didn't know her life. I didn't know that her dad had raped her from the time she was little. And I didn't know that she had endured horrible abuse and took the beatings to save her brother and sister from getting them. And, and this person is doing great. I mean, when you look at what she came from. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, but mentally you're piling on, you know, you're making her more, your thoughts pile on her, whether you realize it or she does or not. And they make her more like how you're thinking. So instead of thinking good things about her and pointing out good things that she was doing and trying to nurture that in her, you just built on the negative and made her more negative just with your thoughts. And I just, here, I thought I was doing so good because I wouldn't gossip or talk bad about somebody, but I'm harboring yeah mean thoughts in my head for her yeah and that's not and they weren't wrong which um, is normal for most people you know it's, right. it's normal especially at work everybody's kind of judging oh, yeah. who's doing their job and how well they're doing it right especially in patient care because there's a lot of people that are in patient care that shouldn't be but I think her heart was in the right place you know she yeah she came from brokenness and and in that she was compelled to serve and there was a lot that I could have done to have lifted her up in that and I didn't. And it was a huge missed opportunity. And it was a great lesson for me to learn to control my thoughts. And so it's hard now, you know, because I come back and I see so much injustice and, and I've oh. got some thoughts about how some people ought to be handled because of all of the suffering they've caused. And, and there should be justice. At some point, there has to be justice. People have to answer for what they've done wrong. And and so I'm always having to temper that, you know, I'm like at any moment, this person could have a revelation, you know, that, that they've caused all this suffering and they could do something to change it. You know, you, your estimation of them is not fact. God's estimation of them is fact. And you need to back off and let God do what he can do. And if, you know, um, justice needs to be brought, it's not on you to do it. And so it's a, it's a hard place to be. And, and so as God and I were together and there was this point where we were going to go on this journey and I wasn't sure where and and I immediately just pulled up 
all these negative feelings about him and all these hurts that I had piled at his feet. And, and I, I like called BS. I'm like, no, you say you love me, but look what you put my kids through. You know, I mean, I watched my kids walk to the mailbox every day for something that was promised that was never coming. And it's one thing for that to hurt me, but they were innocent and that never should have landed on them. And why didn't you do something about that? And he was like, oh, dear one, you've completely misunderstood me. Let me show you. And, you know, and he wasn't a person, he was just this energy, but this yeah. scene unfolds like we're there and we're on this, this field and we're sitting in the bleachers. My son's sitting to my right and my grandson in the scene is five and he was only two when all this happened, but he's running up and down the, the field and they're playing soccer and my son and the son's on him and he's so alive and it just was magic, you know, just that moment. And my son leans over and he says, I'm going to be the dad to him that I deserved. Fine. And it just, it still gets me, you know, and I thought, okay. If this is what it took to break that cycle of brokenness yeah, and to have, have now generations of good men who are strong and who are principled and who, who are active in their children's life, I'll take that hit. Yeah. You know, I'll take that hit if it, if it brings everybody else up. And it was just this understanding that these things that we think are so real and are so incapacitating and debilitating are only that way because we choose to engage in that way with them. So I could have continued engaging with God in a way where I continued to harbor resentment and hurt and hold him responsible for all of the bad things that went on in my life. But that's unfair. I wasn't, I wasn't giving him credit for any of the good. You know, if you're going to hold him responsible for the bad, then he gets right. the good too, right? And I, yeah. I couldn't see that. I couldn't see that my son was looking for ways to be, to learn how to be a good man, to be a good father. Yeah. Um, to break that cycle. To break yeah. that cycle. And how important it is to break that cycle. One mediocre dad won't do it. It takes one great dad to do it. Yeah. You know, and that's a, that's a calling. And, and so I always tell people, it's like that moment, if you've ever dated later in life, like if you got married when you were 20 and all your stuff was still where it's supposed to be, that's great. I, my husband and I have been married almost four years, but we've been together 11 and, and I'm, you know, 51 now and things just aren't where they're supposed to be. And so it's like this idea <laughs> of getting, you know, you've, for women, we've got all these contraptions that put everything where it's supposed to be. And then you have this moment when you're going to get naked in front of this person and you're like, oh crap, it, the lie will be out, you know? <laughs> And that's how it felt with God. I was like, I'm going to have to get naked in front of him. Yeah. yeah. He's going to see everything. You know, I'm more comfortable presenting myself in this way. Um, but it was mine to decide. And, and there was no condemnation either way. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll go with you. And I felt this light come from him and come up through my toes and up through my legs and into my middle, you know, where you kind of have all that visceral pain that just gets stored every time something happens. And it was just going around in circles and healing that and going around my heart and up through my throat and out of my mouth. And I was singing and I'm a terrible singer, but it sounded great. And I'm like, oh, this is, I hope I keep this because I'm a horrible <laughs> singer. And, uh, and then it came back in and it was going to come out my eyes. And I, so I sealed my eyes shut because I didn't want to lose any of the light. And it shot through my eyelashes and went out and hit his light and then came rushing back into my head. And it went through all these areas in my brain. And I knew everything. Could not tell you what I knew now but I knew everything. There were no mysteries. Everything was revealed in that moment that he was going through my head, but then it was gone. I wasn't allowed to know it anymore. 
And we started traveling through my DNA and we're going through this, these curves and I could feel the strands of the DNA going over my skin. And we just keep going and going and we're going faster. And he suddenly stops and, and it startled me because we were going so fast. And he says, do you see me? And I look and I'm like, well, yeah, you're right here. Of course I see you, you know? And he's like, no, no, do you see me? Look, and he's pointing to my DNA. And there was this spot in my DNA that was God. And I'm like, he said, I'm in you. I built you. I'm in you. He said, you, you can say that your father's not your father, but they'll do a DNA test and they'll prove it. I'm in you. You can deny me all you want, but I'm here. I'm in you. I made you. And I had never, God always seemed external to me. You know, and, and that doesn't make any sense to me now because I'm like, well, what is that internal pull that we have then? Mm -hmm. Well, that internal pull has got in you, you know, and it's the divine in all of us. Yeah. Yes. It's like you spend your whole life trying to remember what you knew when he was knitting you together in your mother's womb. Like you've forgotten yeah. it and you got to find your way back to it. And, and for some reason, we love the journey. People will say, well, why, you know, if you know everything when you're in heaven, why would you come to a physical body? And I said, well, it's the difference between me telling you how cold it is in Alaska in the middle of winter and me taking you to Alaska and us getting naked and standing out on the ice together. You have a whole different understanding once you've done that. And we as creations want to create. We want to have this experience. We want to learn. We want to stumble and fall. And I know you think from this low point, you know, people are like, no, I don't want to stumble and fall. Your higher self does. You know, and I'm like this idea that good is anything that isn't painful and bad is everything that is painful is wrong. Anything that moves you forward, whether it's painful or not, is good. And anything that keeps you sitting comfortably in your recliner, having no impact on the world is bad. And I don't care what it is or how you justify it. It's bad. People need you. You're here for a reason. You cannot exercise your purpose if you don't leave your four walls. And it's a hard thing to do because people... Um, sometimes are really crappy and, and they, they hurt your feelings and, and it's just a numbers game. You know, you do it enough, you're going to run into some good people and, and your, your tribe will be built, but it, but it's a hard thing to do. And so, you know, we had gone through all of this and I realized that he was in me and that, uh, you know, I didn't have to go on this search for him. He'd been there all along. I just needed to remember it. And, um, I was having to decide whether I was going to go back or not. And I was like, no, I'm not going to go back. I want to stay. And I was very certain of that. And even as I was saying it, I knew it was a lie. I knew I was going to go back. I knew I had somehow already determined it. And so as I was saying it, it just like the sound kind of fell flat. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's not what's going to happen here. And I, I started really thinking about it because it's not a small thing to go back, you know, especially having been there. And I thought, could I go back, you know, could I go back and really live life and not hide and not build the wall? Could I tear down the wall? And I didn't, I didn't know. I'm like, you know what? I don't know. I don't know if I can, but I knew that I had dishonored this gift of life that I had been given by living it from behind a wall. And that the only way to fix that was to go back and try again. And so as much as I didn't want to, i I made that decision that I was going to go back and I felt God just, I could feel it just receding from me and becoming wow. like a memory. And I started to cry and I'm like, wait, wait, wait. And, and he stopped. And I said, let me remember it because if I forget this, I'll have no hope. 
And so yeah. I remember it. I wake up, I'm in the hospital, I'm off the ventilator. There's a nurse sitting next to my bed. She's like, well, there you are, you're back. And I'm like, I was with God. She's like, oh, that's nice, dear. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like just a minute ago, I was with God. And she's oh like, let God. me go get your family, you know? And I always oh, tell people, my goodness. I'm like, you're in a faith-based hospital. You would think this would be where you could say it, but even they don't. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm like, how is this a thing? And so they go and my family comes in and um, they were tiring me out pretty quick. And, and so she made them leave and she left and she closed the curtains in the room and turned the lights off. And they leave the lights on in rooms all the time. I always tell nurses, if you work in CCU, turn the lights off for your patients at night. Don't leave them on all night because um, it really messes you up. And comas aren't near as restful as you'd think. And I had been in an induced coma, I think for five days. I'd missed my dad's birthday. And, mm. um, and it's very weird to wake up and have lost days. And, uh, and so she'd closed the door and the lights were off. She told me to rest. And um, I was just kind of thinking about God. And then suddenly he appeared, this light appeared in the room and it scared me. And I screamed and he laughed and he's like, I said, oh, I said, well, there you are. And he's like, I'm always here. And I'm like, well, I know, but not like that. Like you never just popped in before. And, and so it had scared me. And so he'd given me this message and he's like, I want you to give this message to people. They need, they need a measure of hope. And, and as he was saying it, I was like, there's no way I'm going to remember this. I need to look it up. I always forget to look it up. Um, but I knew I needed to write it down. So he said it. And I remember just laying there and kind of digesting it. And then the next day I was able to get pencil and paper and write it down. And then I told no one um, because it was the most beautiful thing anybody had ever said to me. And I wanted it for myself. You know, I'd never gotten flowers or love letters or and it was just this expression of love that was so intimate between the two of us. And I thought, gosh, do I have to share everything? You know, because as a single mom, that nothing is yours, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I just want this thing that's, that's yeah. intimate in, in between me and him. And so for years, I didn't talk about it. And, um, and, you know, I kept having problems. I kept going into this respiratory failure. We couldn't figure out why. We'd get goofy doctors that were like, it's anxiety. I'm like, why would you intubate somebody and put them in a coma right. for anxiety? That's crazy. And, you know, then I coded on him and he had to intubate me and he's like, okay, well, maybe not anxiety. And they were trying to talk me into getting a trach and one doctor refused to take me off the ventilator until I signed a paper agreeing to be traked. And I wrote down on the oh. paper, I'm a registered nurse, that's illegal. And so they, they extubated me. And so the last time I was intubated, I popped out again and I went back and I was with God and, um, and I told him that was it, I was done. And I'm like, I don't want to go back, you know, either heal me or take me. And he said, it's not me, it's you. And I'm like, what do you mean? You're God, it's not me. And he's like, Penny, you said you were gonna go back and live and you're still hiding. You've not changed anything. You're still living behind that wall. You know, wow. you're dying because you're not living. If you wanna live, go back and live. And I was so insulted. I'm like, really, that's all it's gonna take. Yeah. Like, yes, you need to say yes. When I put opportunities and people in your path, you need to say yes. And I'm like, and saying yes is gonna, somehow magically heal me and he's like yes wow and I'm like okay well I'll give you the benefit of the doubt since you're God and all and I'll give it a shot you know but this sounds ridiculous <laughs> to me. because it did it was so simple and I'm like yeah yeah it sounds like advice you'd give to a little kid you know but I went back and and I was in my body I got home from the hospital my friend Brian who runs the grief to growth group messages me and he's like hey how are you doing you know I know you were in the hospital and I'm like better and he starts to ask me if I'll come speak to the group and he'd asked me many times and I'd said no and I said yes before I could stop myself and he was like what 
And I'm like, just hang, just go now <laughs> because I'll make up some reason why I can't Take do it. Go. Yeah, hurry, hurry. Right, because it's just so in my nature to be fearful like that. And, and I went and I did the talk and he's like, oh, there might be like 11 people there. Well, some people apparently who had caught onto my story on Facebook chartered a bus from Indiana and came up to Cincy for the talk. And so people just kept coming into the room and they and I'm oh. looking at Brian, like, what the heck? He said 11 people. Um, but all these people came and they were wonderful. And we went to a restaurant after I ended up shutting down the restaurant. We stayed so long talking, but um, I've never had another incident. Anytime anybody's asked me to talk about it, I've said yes. When this whole COVID thing came around and I got sick and started teaching and, you know, I'm like, I'm just going to keep saying yes, because it's been working. I mean, the last episode was gosh, five, five years ago, I think I've been in remission with no special treatment, you know, and we did figure out I had, um, something we don't, I, so I had, I can't remember whether it was cadaver bone or glue or what that they used in that spinal surgery, but we don't know if that kind of triggered this autoimmune thing, um, where I just kept going into anaphylaxis with no cause. We couldn't find anything I was allergic to. It would just happen out of the blue. I could be asleep. It would happen. I could be sitting on the couch. Just, I just never knew if I was going to, so 18 times in two and a half years, I went into respiratory failure and was in induced comas. And so you're in the hospital more than your home. And Mm -hmm. we just could not get any answers. And they're, you know, doctors are like, well, maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's your nerves. And I remember telling one doctor, I'm like, well, the problem is that you have no imagination and I have a vagina. If I had a penis, you would try to figure this out. But because you have no imagination and I happen to own a vagina, you have no curiosity to try and figure out if there is a physiological reason for this. Right. And you're part of what's wrong with healthcare. Yeah. You know, just because a mysterious complaint happens to a female does not necessarily make her crazy. Right. And I'm like, if I'm just crazy, stop intubating me. Yeah. And of course he couldn't because I kept going into respiratory failure, you know? Yeah. So it was just... It, it was just crazy. And when we finally figured out what it was, they said, well, here's the thing, you know, here's what usually happens. It either stops between two and three years um, or you die. That's it. If it doesn't stop between two and three years, that's it. We don't know what causes it. It's very rare. Um, it, like we didn't even have time. The, the EpiPens just gave us enough. So I had EpiPens, injectable um, Benadryl because the oral didn't give us quick enough coverage. And then steroids, and and I that gave me just enough time to get to the emergency room to be intubated. They knew me so well that when I came in, they would go ahead and get the crash cart out, and as soon as I got there, right. I would be intubated without even an you know they'd draw blood gases or something, and within 15 minutes, I was on the ventilator and on my way to a bigger hospital. So it was just I learned a lot about hospital care and how lacking it is and how much it's changed since I got sick, like even now, I, some of the stories I hear, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is not the career. This isn't the calling I had. I don't know what's going on. You know, we're- It's a mess. I was only in for two weeks with my heart and it was, it was an experience all in itself. It really was. I find I'm surprised people survive it as often as they do. Like when I would come out of the ICU, I'd get really good care in the ICU. And then I'd go on to the floor, you know, just the med surge floor. And not one nurse would do my evaluation. I don't know what they were charting, but nobody was evaluating me. No one was listening to my lungs, um, you know, checking my, all the things I check, you know, and they knew yeah. I was a nurse. And I'm like, if they're doing that to me, what are they doing to the 80 year old who's confused across the right. hall? And I remember telling the, the charge nurse, I'm like, I've been here on the floor for four days and I've had one assessment. 
what are these people? She's like, well, it's been really busy. I'm like, no, no, no. I've had yeah, one assessment. You hear that a lot. Any other yeah. assessments that are in there are fraudulent because they did not happen. Yeah. So busyness is not an excuse for that. You're the charge nurse. If that nurse is so busy, she can't do an assessment. You need to be relieving her so she can go do it. Do it. This idea that it's acceptable to you that no one has listened to my lungs in two days. And that's just like, she wasn't even like, I, mean, I was shocked. I, I just couldn't, yeah. surely this is just this one experience, but it happened all the time. Yeah. And so I don't, you know, I know there's a lot wrong with healthcare, you know, nurses are definitely burned out and exhausted and, you know, we don't get sick days. If you get sick, you have to use your vacation time. Um, and if you get sick, you are going to be guilted and maligned for not coming to work. It's terrible. It's abusive. And working 12 hour shifts too. That doesn't help at all. Yeah. Jeez, Pete. It's, it's crazy. And you know, it's funny because um, I was talking to some uh, friends that are teachers and they were talking about how hard teaching is. And, and I taught, I substitute taught for a year, middle school and high school, which are like the grades nobody wants to substitute teach, but I loved it. I thought it was great. And I just find kids really interesting. And, um, and, and I was wondering about schools that are failing, you know, people who are in urban areas where the, the school is failing all of its competencies, the kids aren't making the mark. And, and so I had put out some kind of post and I was like, you know, what do you, if you belong, if you go to one of these schools or your kids go, what do you think the problem is? Do you feel like that they're focusing on hiring good teachers or do you feel like it's just so hard to get people that they're just putting anybody in? Do you feel like your complaints are heard? Do, is, are there gifted and talented programs that, you know, will enrich your child's education if the current curriculum is too easy, if it's too hard, are there accommodations for that? You know, just hard questions I think we need to be asking about education. And I had yeah. two teachers that absolutely lost their minds. They're like, this is not the time to be discussing this. And, wow. you know, you dumping on teachers. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, I never said anything negative about teachers. In fact, I invited them to respond and share what they felt like the problems were. Did they feel heard? Did they feel supported? Right. Um, and I'm like, neither of you work at a failing school. So unless you have, you know, and then they were like, well, nobody, everybody has to teach at least for one week before they can comment. And I'm like, what, what? <laughs> so, so if you've never taught, you have no say in public education and, and what the issues are. And I'm like, the whole problem is, is we've made these sacred cows, you know, church, school, all these things that no one can question because that would make you a horrible deviant. Right. And I'm like, nobody denies that these cert there are certain schools that aren't making the mark. I don't understand why we can't talk about it without everybody getting what my dad would say, I'll butthurt over it. You know, I'm yeah. like, look, there's a problem. And my guess is that it is far bigger than teachers and schools. And that part of it is this, uh, this step back that the community has taken from being part of education. Like when we were kids, you know, the hardware store had the school colors out and they knew what day the oh, football yeah. games were and, and the community was very involved. And I can see where that's right. pulled back. And I think that's problematic because each community is very diverse and has different needs. And I would think you would need your people that are employers to be involved in school so that you can, you know, your school district knows what needs there are in the community for employment and skills and these sorts of things. And, and I'm like, this idea that we just have to stop talking about things to solve the problem is definitely not working. Right. No. And, and it's no, it's no indictment on teachers. Um, they're a very small cog in that wheel. There's a lot, you know, you've got parents that, uh, you know, are single parents and can't be super involved. That was, you know, I can't tell you how much stuff I missed that my kids that I would have loved to have been there for. 
And so I'm like, we've got to be able to start talking about these things and stop making, I mean, there are topics that people just absolutely will not discuss anymore. And it's going to be our undoing, you know, and it's just, it's interesting to me because most people I meet, I find are delightful people. There's very few total jerks. I mean, I've met them, but they're rare. Um, And, you know, I, I find you have an interaction with an actual human. It generally goes pretty well. Um, I don't generally walk away from those feeling super beat up, but this keyboard has killed people. Yeah. You know, it is, it is a weapon. And, and I'm like, if you don't think your perception is being molded and that, that you're being trained to use your keyboard as a weapon, then, then you need to wake up because it, because it's a big issue. It's a real big problem. And and I I feel sorry for kids because I, I feel like they're being taught to lash out that way. You know, like anything you say, you say in a computer or in Facebook is just fine. You know, those are just words, sticks and stones. And I'm like, well, that's never been Mm -hmm. true. And, and I can remember like, you know, you and I are close to the same age. My mom was like, oh, that person's just a bully. Ignore them. How often did that ever work? Yeah, no, never. You have to confront the bully. You have to confront, you know, and you don't want to get in a fight if you can avoid it, but just ignoring problems never solves them. I'm like, that bully grows up to be a hundred percent jerk. Because people were like, just ignore him, just ignore him. And I'm like, you know, maybe mm-hmm. if you or I had come along and said, hey, you know, I hate to point this out. Maybe you don't realize it, but you're kind of an asshole. You know, <laughs> people don't like you because you're harsh <laughs> and you're mean and and yeah. you you don't give, you know, any respect to the person across from you. And I'm guessing you don't mean to come across that way or you don't realize it. But that that person, I think, has a right to know. And, and, and we're just, I think, I, I just, I don't know, I find it a really interesting time because there are certain things that need to be said that nobody will say. And there are certain things that you should never say because they're not productive and they're just mean. And we'll spew those all day long. Yeah, yeah, that's all you hear. <laughs> right, right. I'm like, you know, the fact that you're making regular words into insults mm-hmm. and using them on a class of people, I don't care what side you're on, that's not okay. Right. Um. But it's, it's, it's just become really, really an interesting place. And I know you and I were talking, I was like, I'm going to do this YouTube channel and, and I'm going to see how many enemies I can make and how long it'll take me to be completely canceled for saying obvious truths, you know, um, and that, that we can't just come down to this thing that we just can't talk to each other because nothing will get solved. Right. I don't know that anything will get solved talking to each other, but it can't be any worse, I don't think. No, it's worth a try. Yeah. Got to yeah. try. And that's kind of how you started, you know, with your just whole journey with your heart. And I, it was interesting. I was thinking about that as you were saying it and you were talking about how you didn't realize until you had to have this huge surgery, really what your heart was, you know, well, how involved oh, yeah. it was in who you were as a person and your energy and who you were around other people. This is the how I conceptualized it when you were explaining it and and you didn't realize how big that one thing was. I mean, just, yeah. I mean, you people talk about the heart all the time, but you don't realize that's the thing that keeps you going. That's the key. You know, that you and don't even have to what, think about. Right. What? Yeah. And what is that? What gets that thing going and keeps that thing going? Energy, electric, right. you know? Yeah. It's and magic. It's just, I, it's, I always tell it's mind blowing, you know, life is definitely sacred. And I know this because when, when sperm meets egg and they come together and you have this little zygote, you know, um, somehow this little cell that looks just like this little cell knows to become a heart. 
And then this one knows to become a liver and this one knows yeah. to, and we have no idea why. Yeah. Like if the atmosphere were off just a hair, you couldn't live here. Yeah. Um, if we were an inch closer to the sun, you'd fry. If we were an inch further, right. you'd freeze. This is, I have never seen perfection come from chaos or happenstance. And I used to do this experiment when I was teaching. I taught at the junior college um, or technical college. And I would go around with a, a bottle of Mountain Dew. And I had these little dose cups. And I'd pour everybody a little bit of Mountain Dew. And I'm like, now just, you know, swish that around in your mouth and then swallow it. Okay, then when you've done that, spit into the cup. And so they'd all grow, spit into the cup. And I'd send the bottle around and they'd all pour their spit back in the bottle. And I'd set it on the desk. And I'm like, now how long does that have to sit there before we can have Mountain Dew? And they're like, that's disgusting. That'll never be Mountain Dew. And I'm like, wait, no, all the ingredients are there. So I'm thinking a thousand years, a million, like, what is it? it? Everything is there for it, right? I mean, you got a little extra even. You got, you know, the, the enzymes in your spit. It might not be perfect Mountain Dew, but surely to goodness, we'll get something. And they're like, no, it doesn't. It's an exact chemical thing. And I'm like, oh, so happenstance won't make it Mountain Dew. And I'm like, but that made us happenstance really when have you ever seen anything that is chaos be perfect right and you know i just I, I it's almost amusing to me that people have such a hard time believing it and they believe in other things that are far more difficult to believe you know like the government wants your good or you know, whatever else yeah yeah you know i'm like control wants control that's just how control works but that Mountain Dew is going nowhere because it needs a, a intelligent designer to go home and figure out how to make Mountain Dew. <laughs> but anyway, I was going to try and find that. Um, I can't believe I didn't download it ahead of time. That's just like me. Um, well, you know, I've picked up so many COVID patients this last, well, today I picked up four. Um, wow. It's been crazy. At least it's Omicron though. And it's, it's been easily handled. Um, Anyway, so uh, I was telling you earlier that I have a website. It's called WIT, W-I-T-T, Health Coach. I think it's just withhealthcoach.com. Um, and people can go there and the, the early treatment protocol for COVID is all over the counter. You don't need a prescription for anything. We've had 100% sex. sex. <laughs> I've not had 100% sex. Maybe that's something I should work on. Um, success with it. That's so funny. Um, you know, I don't believe in accidents either. I'm trying to think of what this is called, the thing that I was wanting to read to you. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing that you're doing all the work that you're doing for people and, and actually saving lives. It's, it's incredible, it really is. It has been, I tell you, I, this is not what I was planning to spend my retirement doing. Um, I don't know. I said, I'm more busy now than I was before I retired. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> um, it, it's just been crazy. I don't know if I have it. Shoot. I may have to send it to you. Um, that makes me crazy that I can't find it, but, um, yeah, we've been super busy with that. We've been, um, you know, we go out and see people that are local who don't have what they need on hand. And then we've got the stuff up on the website so that people can, um, people can go there and, and just download everything you need. It's all cheap over the counter. Um, I, it, that's what's been really frustrating for me is I know how easy it is to get people through it if you treat them early. And then, you know, we see all of this stuff that's completely unnecessary and, and in young people even, it, that's been really frustrating. Yeah. Um, I'm not gonna be able to find it. That's so frustrating. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we've been trying to do, you know, I, I'm big on, 
you know, work where you're, work where you're at, look for where God's doing things where you are doing good or good needs to be done. It's not, not hit that area and you be the one to start it. And, you know, people are always looking for, you know, their purpose and they think it's this one big thing. It, it's not, it's, it's your kindness and your desire, you know, maybe you're very hospitable and you're good at making a cup of coffee and listening or, um, you know, that can be your purpose today and it can be oh, yeah. something completely different tomorrow. And, and I just, I worry because people, they really think it has got to be some big thing and they've figured out who they are and where they're going in life and what God made them for. And I'm like, if that's your, you're never going to get anything done. You're, you're just always going to be looking for it. Nothing's going to feel right. Um, but if you just get involved, it's rarely wrong. Right. Um, like God pointed out to you, it's, it's the little things exactly. that matter the most. And I don't know if you're familiar with St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Therese of Lisieux. She uh, is known as the little flower of the little way. She was a nun that uh, wanted to be a saint. But when she started looking at everything it would require for her to be a saint, she says, there's absolutely no way I can do that. So I'll do this little thing, this little thing, this little thing. And now she's not only a Roman Catholic saint, she's actually a doctor of the church. Um, and, and just by doing the little things, you know, and you know what's interesting? that's the thing we all miss. Do you know about the little Cajun saint? No. Uh -uh. There's so this lady had contacted me and she was like, you know, do you do you hear anything from my dead relatives? And I did. I generally don't do that. But um, for some reason, when she messaged me, I saw this little girl and I described her as being in a wedding dress and having curly hair that was kind of cut close to her head. Um, so not like real wild and curly, but close to her head. And she had like this wedding dress on and that she had held this woman that was talking to me because she'd been sick as a baby and that somehow this person brought healing and she had no idea who I was talking about. And she was really frustrated that I didn't see her parents or whatever, but I mean, I, I can't control it. And um, yeah. I'm like, that's just what I see. And, and so she, it, it was probably a week later, she messages me and she sends me this little picture of a little girl in a communion dress, which looks like a wedding dress. Yeah. And it's, and she's called the little Cajun saint. And she's this little girl that um, died in Louisiana and people have gone to her. She used to go and pray for people who were sick and they would heal. And when she passed, people would go to her grave and pray for healing. But she's called the little Cajun saint. And it was so funny wow, because look if you find her a picture yeah. of her online, you'll be like, whoa, she was spot on with that image. But this lady had no <laughs> idea who she was, didn't remember that she had been involved in their lives at all. And, you know, and she was still disappointed. But I found this thing that, I, that God had told me to share. Um, so I had kept it to myself and I, I write here, but I will share it now because the world needs a measure of hope and who am I to deny it? God said, such folly to think anything escapes my knowing as when you were with me all at once, all that I allowed you to know, you knew. No words were spoken, nor were they shouted. I whispered them to your spirit. I discreetly filled you with knowing. Knowing flowed into you as effortlessly as taking a breath. Is it not so? The great I am. No truer words have ever been spoken or written. The great I am is in your core. The great I am is the light. Even when I am hidden, still I am. As my energy charged, sending me over each synapse in your brain, even those small fibers knew that I am. They rose and fell to the rhythm I created, to the symphony I composed, I conducted. I consider it a tragic comedy of arrogance when man denies what the smallest innervation knows. Man thinks he acts and moves outside my knowledge. How could it be so? I say I proclaim he does not. 
His own fibers clutch themselves, laughing at the idea of it. I am the flower, the wind, the rain, the sinew, the marrow, the rock, the author, the maker, the touch that set in motion all that you see, all that you know, and all that you do not see or know. I knit you. I put breath in you. I'm coated in every cell. Every nanosecond of time falls in step as I will it so. I am in you. I'm all. Even when you perceive nothing, still there I am. Even as I tell you this here and now, I press my truth into your breast, your very heart pressing it further in. That's it. But it was such a beautiful message. I mean, it's just the most beautiful love letter I've ever read. Yeah. You know, that we're not forgotten. We are on purpose. He's in us. He's conspiring for our good. You know, there are people on the other side conspiring for your good. You know, I think this world yeah. starts to feel an awful lot like everything is plotting against us. Right. Yeah. But there are legions cheering you on, you know, for every little thing you do. They're so proud, you know, and and God just delights in you and dances over you. Just the smallest measure of faith or, or acting when you feel uncomfortable to do it. Like God will sometimes push me to go talk to somebody and he knows I hate that. And I'm like, look, there are people who love that. I'm not that person. This person would love to do that. Perhaps you should talk to them. And I have these arguments with him. And he's like, no, I want you to do it. You need to do it. There's something they need to hear from you. And I mean, I get nauseous. My hands shake still to this day, but I do it because, you know, I'm trying to do the right thing and I don't want to end up sick again by just not living my life the way I should. Thank you and bless you for doing what you're doing. And thank you for sharing that. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Well, thanks you know, for sharing I did a show on, uh, on Dr. Reverend Chad Vara, who started the first uh, suicide hotline. And he, God <laughs> told him, this is what you need to do. Uh, because what had happened is the first funeral that he presided over was for a 14-year-old girl who thought she committed suicide because she thought she had some kind of disease, venereal disease, that was going to slowly kill her and um, just totally ruin her life and embarrass her. The only thing that happened, she started her period. So she took her life because she thought she had something else going on. So he vowed that he was going to do something to stop this, to educate, you know, the young people and especially people in poverty areas. But he was like telling God, it's going to take the, somebody, it's going to take a person who has more time than I do that yep. can still be paid enough money to take care of their family. And God was like, well, you can do it with your church. He goes, I've got too many parishioners. I'm too busy. It would have to be somebody in a small church with a few parishioners. So he went away on a holiday. And while he was on holiday, he got a call from his higher up saying, you're being transferred to this other church. He goes to the church. It's a small church, small parishioners, only a few. He actually got the parishioners to help him start answering the phones. So he actually first started the first suicide and anxiety and hotline and stuff like that, where people going through mental issues or you know just needing help could yeah. call and talk to somebody. So, you know, that's, that's how crazy, you know, he'll, he'll make it happen for you if he wants you to do it, you know, you know, that's an amazing story because so ever since I have done these talks, especially since August of 2020, um, I've had a lot of men reach out and, you know, uh, men that are homosexual and, and some are struggling with it, some aren't. And, um, but they have this kind of common theme about how they are longing for a relationship with God, 
um, but they know they're disgusting to God. And I remember feeling that, like the first man that said that to me, I remember feeling what that must feel like to think that you are disgusting to God. Like, I mean, I've not considered myself close to God for a lot of my life, but I never thought I was disgusting to God. Yeah. And I remember that breaking me and me thinking, what must that be like? Like every day to think that every single thing you do is a disgusting disappointment to the creator of the universe. How do yeah. you even care? No wonder there are so many suicides. And yeah. And I, yeah. so I started talking to this guy and I didn't know what to say to him, you know, and, um, you know, we've all got like these preconceived notions and I'm like, you're just going to have to give me a lot of grace. Cause there's just a lot, I don't know. Um, right. and I've got friends that are transgender and gay and, but you know, we don't always talk about the crux of things. And, and so he started telling me about his childhood and the difficulties he'd had with his dad and everything. And, um, and it just broke my heart, you know, seeing this, I mean, I could feel like I was him as a little boy, you know, this reaching out and longing for this acceptance from your dad and just constantly being cut down and being will to, to see affection willfully withheld from you and what that must do to a little one, you know, and I, oh. I'm always amazed, you know, I rarely meet somebody who's had an easy life, who has an inspiring story. Yeah. It's, it's these people that have climbed out of the ashes, you know, and and these, these guys would call me and, and I would listen to their story and it just made so much, se so much sense to me. I'm like, okay, so from the time you were being formed as a person, this person made you feel like that you weren't worth his time or his love or, you know, I mean, he just blew you off and he let you know that you meant nothing to him. And I'm like, the fact that you've gone through your life trying to fix that through male relationships seems pretty common sense to me like how else would you fit you know you're a young person trying to figure yeah. this out you only have so many tools and and of course we all do this you know my first husband was me trying to fix my childhood and and you know my second husband was me being convinced that you know that was just the best I was ever going to do because who would marry a woman with three kids and it took me that marriage you know almost resulting in something terrible happening to me because he was so abusive and I finally just stopped. I'm like, okay, there's either something wrong with me that I cannot pick a decent man or it's just not meant to be. And so I'm going to stop. And so I, I didn't date or anything. Um, and I just completely withdrew from that whole idea of a relationship. And, and so I started reading the Bible and I'm one of those people that's, I don't know, I just kind of open it up because it's all good, you know, and Oh, yeah. who knows what might be there that day. And so I yeah. flop it open and I just read whatever was there, right? No plan or, um, and it was all good. And, and so every time I would open it up over this period of time, it was a fish reference. And it got to be kind of this funny little nod between me and God. And I'm like, oh yeah, another fish reference. Ha ha, you're very funny. Um, and God kept putting on me in my heart that he, it was not good for me to be alone. And he's like, you are a person who does really well alone and that's your comfort spot, but it is not good for you. And, and, you know, the world is missing out because you are so okay there. You know, if you were more needing the world, it would be better. And, and I just, I just didn't need the complications that, that relationships and everything brought. And, and I'm oh. like, look, there's a lot of women who want a mate and I can give you their names and their phone numbers. And I'm sure they would be thrilled to have your help. I'm not interested. And so I just kept getting those verses. And finally I was sitting I think I was sitting in my room one day and the kids weren't there and, and it just 
popped into my head, plenty of fish, right? And I'm like, what is that? So I type it in. It's a dating <laughs> site. I cracked up. I'm like, oh yeah, that's funny. That's a good one. You're hysterical. <laughs> and so I get in there and I'm like, this, I don't want this. You know, and my kids were getting older to where they were going to be graduating soon. And, um, and I'm like, all right, fine. And so I write this, I write this uh, profile that you could sum it up as saying, keep on walking. <laughs> There's no way this girl's <laughs> going to give you the time of day. Basically what it said, it was like, look, yeah. I'm a Christian girl. I'm not in, in it for a hookup. Um, if that's what you're looking for, you know, the only people that I've ever had that kind of relationship were, were people I was married to. So I'm not the person just keep on moving. I'm terrified of clowns. It's not anything I'm ever going to get over. Um, you know, and it was just kind of this random sort of thing. Um, you know, I don't, I don't need money. I don't need property. I don't need things. I'm not going to be in a relationship unless I feel it adds spiritually to my life. Um, because I can provide for all those other things. I have a job and, and you know, if it's not icing on the cake, I don't want it. And well, apparently that is heard as a challenge to every man who wants a hookup. Oh, wow. They're like, oh yeah this girl is going to, and I'm like, what I told, I was pretty clear. That's not going to, Oh, sure. You want to meet. And I'm like, no, I really like, I was being serious here. Right. I, I didn't realize what a brain game that is with people. But I, so I was like, this is crazy. I'm going to get off here. Cause these oh my people gosh. are nuts. Like sending naked pictures. And I'm oh, like, no. okay, I don't know what world you come from where they're like, boys, when you're trying to catch that eye of that sweet girl, <laughs> send her a picture of your naked genitals. She'll love it. Um, it just was not me. And I'm like, this is like, you're totally off the oh, list now. <laughs> right, right. One thing that you could do. And so my husband, my current husband was on and he was getting ready to just get off plenty of fish altogether because he'd had no good experiences. I think he'd been out with like 13 girls and it just been a nightmare. And they were like, how much do you have in savings? Do you have property? You know, all this oh, kind of no. stuff. Well, you're not tall enough. You know, you're only 5'10". I really need somebody taller. And I was, I was amazed because I assumed women were sane and men were just crazy, but it's both. <laughs> and uh, so one day he said, he tells the story so sweet. He's like, um, I was getting ready to get off and I expanded my range to like 50 miles or something. And there you were. And I was like, who is Aww. this? <laughs> he's so sweet about it. So Aww. he messages me and he's funny and he's smart and he gets my sarcasm. Like he doesn't think I'm being insulting. He knows it's just funny. And, um, and I remember, so we finally, I, so a friend of mine in the meantime died of cancer. And I'm like, I can't do this. I don't want to have a relationship. And so I blew him off. I'm like, I don't want to do this. And he's like, are you just one of those girls that gets a guy on the hook and then just dumps him? Like you like to do that sort of thing. And I'm like, oh no, Lock. you know, <laughs> then he started sending me emails and, and he's like, look, go out with me one time. And if you hate me, you never have to see me again. And I'm like, all right, fine. If that's what it's going to take. And so I'm supposed to meet him at Cracker Barrel on March 12th, which is interesting because that's the day I got COVID-19 in 2020. It's his son's birthday. And that's the day that I met him in Richmond. And uh, I was going to this place to, to Cracker Barrel to meet him. And one of my false eyelashes fell off. And I'm like, oh, crap. You can't just have one big old eyelash, you know, and nothing on the other because you look like a lunatic. So I pull over. I'm going through the car, like going through my clothes, trying to find this eyelash. I'm like, oh, damn it. What do I do? You know, so I have to rip the other one off because, you know, so now I've got a little glue thing. It just it's a nightmare, right? I'm like, fine, Bye. fine, I'll go. So I go there, I park the van, I get out of the van and there's a man standing by the newspaper machine facing the newspaper machine. And I get about 30 feet from him. And I, I've only audibly heard God on this side a couple times in my life. And this was one of them. And he said, get ready. This is the one I've been preparing for you. 
Oh. And, I, and he turned around and I remember thinking, oh, he's so cute, you know? Oh. And so we went in and we sat, I think we, so I think we met at like 12. We finally left Cracker Barrel at like three. I finally got home at like nine that night. And, you know, now wow. we're married, but um, it was just so interesting because I remember getting in the car on the way home and there's this song um, by Uncle Cracker called Smile. And it's this, it's just this sweet, cute little song. And it's like, you know, you make me, uh, uh, you make me sing like a fool, fall out of bed, you know, it's just this really, I think it's yeah. a song he wrote for his daughter. And, and I remember hearing it as soon as I got in the car, it started like somebody had put a tape in or something. Oh. And I knew, I knew I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to end up marrying this guy. And I so don't want to, and I fought it. You know, we didn't, we've been together 11. We've only been married four years in July. It oh, took no. that long. <laughs> because <laughs> you know I wanted my kids out of school I didn't want to have to parent with another person right um I didn't want to have to move my kids from their school and and I wasn't really sure I wanted a relationship and um yeah, especially you know, everything, everything you've been through oh my gosh yeah yeah one I was like my kids will be gone soon and then I don't have to worry about anything you know yeah. I'm going to start a relationship why would you do that to yourself that's crazy you're finally going to have some freedom and I don't know. I just knew I wasn't going to get out of it. And then I got sick and he was there through all of that, you know? And I mean, I remember his dad, his dad's past now, but his dad telling him, you know, why don't you see if you can find a healthy girl? Oh no. <laughs> I was oh, always in the gosh. hospital. I was so sick. And, and I thought, really, yeah. why do you stay? I mean, this is nothing but, you know, you getting another call that I'm in a coma somewhere, but it was just meant to be. And then I had that near death experience and both of his parents are Methodist ministers. They're both gone now, but um, he came home one day and we were really struggling. And, and he said, you know, I'm worried I'm going to come home one day and you're going to have shaved your head and become a Buddhist monk. And I said, would you not be able to love my me? My wife can home? talk to you about that. <laughs> yeah. He was really worried about yeah. it. And I said, you know, um, Dr. Atwater wrote this book on people who have near death experiences. And I think it was like 75% of people who have them end up divorced. And I said, so could it, be that you and I would end up divorcing over God and I said are we going to do that are we just going to walk away from it and throw it all away or are we going to try to work through this and and it's not easy for that other person because you are totally weird I mean like all right I then you head low with the tree and yeah I yep <laughs> everything was like did he we had that tree in the front yard that he was supposed to cut yeah. down and I've been nagging him about it and and then we get home from the hospital and I look at the tree and I look at him, I'm like, you can't cut the tree. Her name is Lola. And I can feel her loving yep. me. And she's back. She looks great. And, uh, you know, I was still around. Yeah, he, yeah right. Oh, he that's great. It was hard for him, you know, and can you yeah. imagine oh, yeah. just yeah. all the time? You don't know if you're, you're, you know, this girl that you love is going to make it or not. Yeah. And it just was so much stress in that early part of our relationship. And so I feel like, you know, we've kind of gone through the hard stuff. So oh, this yeah. ought to all be pretty much icing from here on out because our kids are raised and, um, and it has been, it definitely has been good for me because he likes to be social and he likes the public. I don't understand it, but um, <laughs> I'm actually good with the public. He's like, you do good. And I'm like, I do. I just, if I didn't have to, I wouldn't. Yeah. But it is amazing you for doing you. what you're doing. Jeez. Yeah. I'm We're trying. You. I just think that, you know, we're all world changers and people just don't know it yet. So yeah. like, you know, people, if you feel like you're harboring just all this angst and anger in your heart and, you know, what is up with these stupid people? If they would just do this, everything would be okay. It, that, that's never true. 
It's never true. Even when they do that thing, it's not okay. And I think people have got to recenter themselves and they have to say, things are an absolute mess. What can I do to, to make something better just today? Just today, that's it. Not your whole life, just today. You know, could you walk your neighbor's trash can back to her garage for her? Maybe it's hard for her to get out. Um, you know, you've got, you made 12 cookies and you guys only ate four. Could you run some over to the guy across the street who lives alone? Um, it is those small things that are world changers. And it, there's no excuse. No. You know, and I think we all think it's something big and we think it's something huge and it's not. It's that little intimate, hey, I see you. I know you're alive. You're not alone over here. I see you going in by yourself every day. It occurred to me, you probably don't get a lot of home cooked meals. I wanted to bring you something, you know, and from there, a friendship is established. I said it was so much easier when we were kids because there'd be a kid across the street and you'd go over there and you're like, hey, do you want to be friends? But if you do that now, people think you're creepy, you know? <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Penny. I live across the street. Want to be friends? They're like, no, that's okay. You can go back home now. <laughs> Take those cookies, though. <laughs> Well, see, back when we were young, though, that was fine. People yeah. could do that. Now, in today's society, it's it's now creepy. So yeah, like when somebody rings the doorbell, I'm like, but who the hell's here? They didn't call. Yeah. What? Who would just come over unannounced? You know, yeah. we were thrilled when we were kids. My mom had stuff she kept on yeah. hand for if people stopped by. Yeah. And now I'm like, you know, duck down, turn the TV down. We don't know who it is. You know. <laughs> it's usually somebody trying to sell you something, but oh. now I'll feel bad. You'll come to my door and I'll be like, don't answer it. <laughs> well it's been great to talk to you i'm going to stop our little as time. it has to you um thank you so much. wow wasn't that a great interview there's two things though that i want to finish up with that penny didn't get a chance to there were two things that she mentioned uh, in all the information that she shared with us on her near-death experience the first was uh, when she first went out of her body and was found herself in her sister's car, um, that she was actually able to validate when she came out of the coma. Her sister was there. She was able to validate that experience um, actually did happen. What she witnessed and saw was actually what her sister was doing at that time. So that was one validation. The second one was where God showed her uh, with her son, watching her grandson uh, like five years later at a soccer game. Well, that actually came to be, and it played out exactly as God had shown Penny. Before we close, I wanted to let everyone know that Penny is in the process of working on her own podcast as well as her own YouTube channel. Uh, you may have heard her talk a little bit about that in the interview. As soon as that information becomes available, Penny's going to let me know, and I will definitely be sure to do an update on a future show and share that information with you. Many thanks to Penny for doing the interview and for sharing her story with us. I know her time is so very limited, and she's so busy helping so many people and, you know, heaven bless her for everything that she does and we can't thank her enough and we're so happy that she took the time to do the interview and now we have this amazing information that we never had before that can truly help our faith and inspire and encourage and uplift us also infinite thanks to my beyond amazing wife for sharing penny with me my wife is the person that actually found Penny on a YouTube interview, 
and said, hey, you've got to check this person out. She, her story is like truly amazing. And her viewpoint and what she experienced with God is exactly what I believe and have believed forever. And, you know, again, beyond infinite thanks to my wife for seeing that and bringing it to my attention. So, you know, what could unfold did unfold so we could have this amazing interview that we just had. Okay, so this week's song of the week is a really good one. Um, not to say that the other ones, <laughs> previous shows, have not been good, but this one is really going to help you. Okay, Penny didn't get to share in her interview with me uh, the following that I'm going to share with you. She has shared this in previous interviews, but she said that when she met God and was with God, his energy or its energy resonated in the key of G. Now, those of you who aren't familiar with music wouldn't have any idea what the key of G is. So I'm going to play a little bit of Yo-Yo Ma playing the Bach Cello Suite Number 1 in G Major. Now you might ask, how will this help me? I'll tell you after the clip. Okay, so how can that help you? Now you know the vibration of the energy of God. So now I'll have a link to uh, that song in the show notes, but you can look it up online. Just Google uh, Bach uh, Cello Suite Number 1 by Yo-Yo Ma. And I challenge all of you to take some time this week not just once, but a couple times, and put some headphones on or find a quiet place and play this piece of music and pray. Pray to God and see, or to the divine or whatever you call or label that which cannot be labeled or called anything. But I challenge you to do that a couple times this week. Just put that piece on, let it play, and pray to the divine. And see the amazing feeling and connection and communion and intimacy that you will experience. I promise you, if you if you do this more than once, and like I said, do it in a quiet place, either with headphones on, um, and just relax, take a couple deep cleansing breaths before you do it, put the piece on, let it play and pray and you'll it will blow your mind i so hope that you all enjoyed the show and that you will keep coming back and that you will share this show with as many people as you can you know if it is if this show has helped you 
please allow it to help others. And the only way we can do that is by word of mouth and by sharing. That's the only way this show gets out is by doing just that. So please, please, please feel free to share this show with as many people as you possibly think uh, would be interested and could benefit from it. And as always, links to everything that we've covered in the show is in the show notes that is on the website. And the website you can find at Faith and More Podcast, that's all one word, dot Wix site, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash my dash site, S-I-T-E. Or if you want to contact me, which I'm always open to that, we have people from over 20 different countries listening now. And I'm always open to ideas for new people to showcase. And I know that you all in all these other countries have such an amazing, rich and diverse culture that we in the States or anywhere else in the world don't know about. So that includes amazing people, truly amazing people that we have no idea about that we need to know and that deserve to be known all around the world. So please reach out to me either through the website or you can contact me directly at Faith and More Podcast. Again, all one word at gmail.com. And don't forget, I love to pray. I do my level best to be in a continuous uh, prayer mode all the time. Um, and I love to pray for others. So on the bottom of the web page, is a form that you can fill out to request prayers for either you, family, friends, anyone, anyone. Um, you know, it does have down there to put your first and last name. You don't have to do that, uh, but you do have to put your email address down so I can contact you back. Your information's safe with me. I don't sell or do anything with your information other than we'll reply back to you. And there is a comment section below that where you would write your uh, prayer requests and intentions. And please note in there as much information as you feel comfortable with, because those of you who pray know that the more information you have on someone, the better those praying are able to direct and channel those prayers to that person. And the more people we can get to pray, the better. And people on this show love to pray as much, if not more than I do. So please, if you would like, please notate down there if you would like for me to share your prayer request with the show. That way we can get everybody praying. And I can only share whatever information you want me to share. I don't have to share everything. So again, something to please keep in mind. It's a, it's a free and absolutely amazing, valuable resource uh, that's there for everyone and anyone. And I strongly encourage everyone to please utilize it. So I will pause here for this week. I so pray with the very core of my being that the divine blesses heals and keeps each and every one of you. May the divine wrap around all of you and protect you. And may you all have an amazing, how about truly amazing and blessed week. And I will see you all next week.